Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Hodes, and we're broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. And we are starting off the year 2022 with a fantastic show and a fantastic guest. And a big thank you to all of our listeners and all of our subscribers. This show has grown substantially over the course of 2021. We're really excited about all the people who have become listeners to Beyond Politics, both on our broadcast, which is out of both Concord and Manchester, New Hampshire. And we've added thousands and thousands of new listeners on broadcast radio and also to our podcast, which is growing like gangbusters. And we want to ask that if you have not yet subscribed to this show, please do. It really does help us out. And we are so excited about the great guests and shows that we have lined up to start off the new year. And we thought we would start with one of the very best. As we enter 2022, the biggest question on everyone's minds, the biggest question in the world is what's going to happen with COVID, especially as we deal with the Omicron wave, which is continuing to lead to record numbers of cases, just about 600,000 a day at last count. So we wanted to check in with one of our favorite guests, one of the most popular in all of 2021, Donald G. McNeil Jr. Throughout this pandemic, for millions of readers and podcast listeners in the U.S. and around the world, Donald has been one of the most trusted, thoughtful, and clear explainers on the science of the coronavirus and public health measures to control it. He was the lead reporter on the COVID-19 pandemic for the New York Times in 2020. And since leaving the Times, he's continued to write and explain the science of COVID to the public. And he recently wrote an article titled, Oh, great. Now I've got COVID. So Donald, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I've got to ask, since you revealed in your post on Medium last week that you've got COVID, how are you doing? I am completely fine. I, I, I mean, it's day seven. Seven days ago, I woke up with a slightly scratchy throat and very mild fever. I mean, less than 99 degrees. I'm, I'm usually 97 something. So because I know that the Omicron variant is presenting less like classic COVID and more like a cold or flu, I thought, mm. and I had some rapid tests left over because we used them to do my family's uh, pre-Christmas dinner, I took one and it came up very weakly positive, but positive, you know, a very faint pink line, which, you know, any positive is a positive. And I, so I, I had to basically get out of my girlfriend's apartment, even though I was worried I've been there for three days, I might've infected her and get home, which I did. And I've been isolating since then. That very same day, the CDC changes guidelines on how long you have to isolate, changed it from 10 days to five days. I thought that was kind of loosey-goosey going back with no tests in five days that, you know, we know that you can still be infectious. So I decided to isolate according to the British protocol, which is seven days and out as long as you test negative on day six and seven on a rapid test, which is kind of similar to the NBA protocol, which is six days as long as you test negative on the sixth day. So I was doing that. 
but yesterday was the sixth day and I tested positive, very strongly positive. And today I also tested very strongly positive. Now I'm completely fine. I mean, I could go out and play squash. I feel very healthy. I, you know, no sniffles, no nothing. I might be infectious. So what I'm now going to do is follow the CDC's old protocol, which is to stay in for 10 days. And that has nothing to do with testing. That's because they know as an epidemiological fact that once you've been 10 days past your first symptoms, you're no longer going to transmit the virus. There's just, there are virtually no cases of that happening. So that's, that's the safest. And you've gotten some expert support for that approach, I, I understand. Yeah, since since I wrote an article saying I've got you know COVID, I got you know, and since my email list includes a lot of the you know top doctors in the country, I got a lot of very nice free medical advice and, and very nice expressions of concern and, and everything else. The medical advice, none of it agreed with with each other. I got everything from you're fine, just stay in bed, to go to a hospital right now and ask for the monoclonal antibodies, and which I didn't do, and uh, because I felt healthy. And and yeah, and since I wrote another piece this morning saying you know, here's my situation. I'm kind of an example of one of those many people who are in this weird gray zone where there are a lot of people who are sick, but testing negative. And there are people like me who are healthy or, or you know, recovered, but testing positive. And, you know, clearly the CDC protocol isn't perfect for everybody. And clearly this is not great. It's, it's, it's I'm really just sort of illustrating the confusion and the fact that even in science, you never have perfect answers to things. And yeah, people, including Tony Fauci, have said, you're doing the right thing. You know, wait the 10 days because then, then you'll be safe. So so here we have a perfect example of what we could call COVID confusion. And the public is is the great the great public is is going nuts. Nobody seems to appreciate the vagaries of a disease and trying to catch up to a disease and figure out what the right thing to do. So in your blog post and just now, you've talked to us about the British standard, which is seven days and the NBA standard, which is six days and the new CDC standard, which is five days. But Tony Fauci, the voice of all things, reasonable says, no, you're doing the right thing. Stay inside for 10 days. So is the CDC practicing good science here? Are they just guessing? What is a poor member of the public to think about all the COVID confusion about how to handle things, especially with Omicron, where as with your symptom, it, 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 can seem or can in fact be pretty mild in terms of symptoms. Is it is there good science happening? Well, I I think the CDC is trying to do well, I should say, first of all, I'm not privy to what the discussions that go on inside the CDC. I would guess that they are under a great deal of pressure from the White House, which is under a great deal of pressure from the airline industry and the cruise industry, because they've made it quite clear that they have big shortages of personnel and they want to get the planes back in the air. And, you know, this isn't going too well. You know, the, there's almost 100 cruise ships are sailing, but under investigation because of outbreaks on them of, of the Omicron variant. And now we have an awful lot of planes being canceled and they're being canceled because flight attendants and crews are sick. And the pressure to put them back on the planes after five days with no tests means that you're pressuring people to, you know, and to fill up the planes with people who are abiding by the same, 
you know, loosey-goosey protocols means that either the flight attendants or the crews are going to infect the passengers or the passengers are, you know, are going to be infecting the flight attendants. And I just think that's an unsafe situation. And I think the, the head of the, the flight attendants union is absolutely right to raise a fuss about this, that we're being asked to, you know, and, and then you have to ask, you know, who's an essential worker in this society? I mean, I, I completely agree. And I've known since the beginning of this pandemic that the time would come when we're going to have to ask, when hospitals would have to ask their workers to come to work sick. Basically, if you're on your feet, we've got patients who are not on their feet, who are dying, who need your help. And people die from little tiny things like nobody's paying attention when the oxygen mask slips off their face. And, you know, if, in, when ICUs are overwhelmed. And so it's very important that to save lives, we ask hospital workers, you know, and police and fire and the other ancillary workers for emergencies to keep working, even if they're sick. But, you know, I don't see any reason why a retired journalist should have to come out and be able to go to a nightclub. Not that I want to, but, I, you know, but, but the protocols apply to me. And I'm not sure that, you know, airlines are, are so, if, if we had not let so much travel take place during the Christmas season, which we knew was kind of crazy, because we knew the Omicron, I thought the FAA should have said, we're going to, you know, slow down the number of planes. We're going to, you know, try to minimize travels because we're going to minimize transmission. We did it to South Africa. We cut off air travel in South Africa. And then we should have realized that, you know, this virus is in New York. It's in Seattle. It's in a very small number of other places in the city. And those people flying out or, or flying to New York and back are going to take the, the virus with them. And I thought they should have slowed down the transmission, not to ruin the economy, but just so that the ICUs don't get overwhelmed. Because when your hospitals get overwhelmed, people die. I mean, there's plenty of studies saying that you go into a jammed ICU, if it's more than 75% full, your chances of survival drop by half. Well, on that note, I spoke to an ICU nurse locally where I live, and she said that within her hospital, they're planning as if 90% of the people in this area that falls into the catchment area of the hospital are going to get COVID by the end of February, which I found absolutely stunning. And then I read your blog post last week where you started out saying, I thought this wave of the virus might get most of us. And that, it feels a little scary. So I want to ask, is that how this is probably going to turn out? Even with all of the vaccination and boosting and masking that we've accomplished and all that we've learned over the course of this pandemic, are most of us going to end up getting COVID in this wave? Well, look, I, I, again, I can't predict the future, but from what I'm seeing in New York, I mean, I have never seen so many people infected. I have never seen so many people who say, oh, you know, I just saw somebody who was infected, so now I got to isolate. And, and this is, you know, numerous members of my own family, my, my girlfriend's family, friends, stuff like that. People are, people are getting infected. Fortunately, almost none of them are in a serious state. But I've got a friend who's in a hotel room in Florida right now. And I was on the phone this morning saying, go get a doctor and get the antibodies. This is somebody who, you know, wanted to go see his team play in the Rose Bowl. And I kind of said, you know, you got to make your own decisions for yourself. But, you know, you might be in a little bit of danger. And he went and he got sick. And he got some heart issues. And I think he ought to, you know, get the antibodies. But, I, you know, I, but I'm a journalist. I think he needs to talk to a doctor and, and, and ask about the antibodies. Hopefully a doctor who knows and, and knows that the Glaxo antibodies are the only ones that work against this, this which is another distressing situation. So, so anyway, the short answer to your question is an enormous fraction of this country is going to get infected. And, and that seems to have, and it, and it probably is going to peak very fast, certainly in New York City, because we saw that in Hauteng, which is Johannesburg and Pretoria. I used to live there. It's a, it's a pretty urbanized place for South Africa. 
I live in Johannesburg. And, and then in London, the, the virus shot up. It was not, you know, one of those curves, you know, we, did you try to flatten? It was literally a spike. It looked like an ice pick. Just cases shoot up double, triple, quadruple very fast. And then they start to drop very fast, which is what happens when you've basically infected everybody you can infect. They, they get suddenly everybody's immune. We don't know how long the immunity lasts, but, you know, they've been infected with, the, with this variant. So presumably, you know, presumably I've picked up some immunity too. This is, been, this is in effect my fourth booster. So yeah, that, that could very well happen. I don't know about 90%, but some huge percentage of this country could get infected now. And that can absolutely change the course of the pandemic. So, so let me engage in an exercise in cognitive dissonance. Uh, because normally we would say, oh my God, I don't want to be infected. But perhaps large numbers of infections might be a good thing in a strange way, because there seems to be some evidence that the combination of being vaccinated and having had a case of COVID gives added layers of protection against future infection. I mean, we have a friend who is fully vaccinated, boosted, actually asked, and in all seriousness, no joking, whether he should want to get the Omicron variant, given that his risk of serious illness is low, and it would be protective in the future to add all those antibodies to the physical arsenal of protection against COVID. What do you make of that kind of argument? Okay. I've heard this argument. I was thinking about it yesterday. It's kind of, my first response is, okay, define good. Good is always defined by the survivors. Was it good when an atom bomb landed on Hiroshima? Well, very bad for the people of Hiroshima. Probably did bring World War II to an end since my family lost my stepmother's brother on Guadalcanal and my mother's favorite cousin on Iwo Jima, they thought it was great, but they were survivors. So do I think it's a good thing that a very fast moving, but only occasional, lethal, only occasionally lethal variant is racing through the population? Well, again, define good. I mean, we, we, it, will, it will speed us towards herd immunity. It will speed us towards the end of the pandemic, but it will happen again, unfortunately, at the cost of lives. Most of those lives will be of the unvaccinated, no question about it, probably 90%. Now, if you're vaccinated and boosted, maybe you are you know, wallowing in a hot tub of schadenfreude saying, okay, you know, you're gonna learn your lesson now. And I get that feeling. But, you know, th th those people have families, too, who will miss them. And also there will be people like my friend who was vaccinated and boosted, but pretty damn sick right now. And, and, there and I found out from my sister just a couple of days ago that the woman who was our babysitter when she, we were little kids and she was a nice teenager who lived a few blocks away has died of COVID just, just recently. I do not know her vaccine status, but you know, I knew the family, they seem pretty smart, they're prob probably vaccinated, but I don't know. But so people are still dying of this. So yeah, it may bring it to an end quickly, but this is a kind of an example of be careful what you wish for. You for someone as well-read in science as you are and with so many great sources in, in leading scientific establishments, do we have some scientific understanding at this point about whether it's truly established that Omicron is less deadly, less likely to lead to hospitalization and death. 
And do we know we have a we have a pile of evidence that is getting bigger all the time. In in the beginning, it was just kind of anecdotes that doctors in South Africa said, you know, every, all my patients seem to be fine or or pretty good, not so bad. Now we're getting good evidence that the virus seems to attach to the bronchioles, to the airway high up in your chest, but not very well to the receptors at the bottom of your lungs. And that's good news. I mean, that means you can basically cough and sneeze it out. So you can spread it. No question that it spreads very easily. But if it doesn't go deep into the lungs and attach easily in the lungs, then you've got a better chance of being surviving. So we're not, we're not certain, but the evidence is growing all the time that, yeah, it does seem to be it does seem to be better, but that doesn't mean that that people who are unvaccinated are off the hook. They're not. They're not. It's it's still, you know, somewhat dangerous for them. I mean, we've seen that the hospitalizations are up by thirty percent. I think that's it's like a thirty percent just in the last uh, in the last week. So that indicates that a lot of people are going to the hospital with something. And and I don't that's I don't believe that's just people are going to the hospital for car crashes who happen to be testing, you know, positive for it or you know or getting dental surgery in the hospital because you know and something tests. It, it's it looks like it's real that there there are people who are going to the hospital because they have COVID and complications of it and there's more kids going to the hospital kids who are unvaccinated so that's that's you know that's a bad sign. And there's still plenty of Delta around in the U.S. but it seems like. Omicron is is maybe overtaking it as the dominant variant in the U.S. Yes, that that's happening. I don't know the numbers because it, and even the CDC doesn't seem to be too sure about the numbers. And it, and it's happening in different different places. I mean, you you can have that where in New York City, Omicron is pushing Delta out, while in you know other parts of the country, you still get Delta still strong, and you don't but usually I, know what you get. And one and one final point on that. Is there any indication yet, I, as a parent of young children, obviously my ears prick up at the mention of more hospitalizations among kids. And one potential interpretation of that is, look, if you have more raw numbers of people going to the hospital because more raw numbers are infected with a, a, a pathogen like this, that could account for increasing hospitalizations. Do we have any indication so far about whether Omicron is differentially more impactful for young people, or, or we just don't know? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I mean, for unvaccinated kids, if it's faster spreading and also kids are going back to school, I do know that there's an awful lot of, awful lot of sickness in, in kids' families because I follow the kids of thermometers and you know, they, they track illness in families and a lot of kids, in, and they, they have an arrangement with the New York City schools and they're showing a lot more sick kids. And that's a heavily unvaccinated population. So it's definitely going through that population hard. But I, I, I don't know, we, we can't quantify what you're looking for, which is, is it X percent more lethal to kids than, than Delta was. To turn to another aspect of the article that you wrote last week, where you admit something of a of a personal story, a personal experience in the course of your reporting on infectious disease. You connected in your article the fact that people cheat on social distancing and quarantining and other mitigating measures that we take against infectious disease to your own experience with SARS 18 years ago. And the fact that even as an experienced science reporter and an expert on the dangers of infectious disease, you felt that in one instance, you yourself had cut some corners. So I guess my question is, if even someone like you can be prone to that, to that kind of, to that kind of corner cutting, does that mean that strict social behavior measures like trying to enforce wearing masks and quarantining and social distancing are sort of 
doomed to failure. Is, is there any effective way to do them realistically at this point in the US? Or should we as a policy matter just be emphasizing vaccination and treatment? Well, you can't vac emphasize vaccination and treatment in the beginning of a pandemic because you don't have a vaccine. I mean, we didn't have one for almost a year when this started. So, and I think we learned then that social distancing measures, you know, only some people will abide by them. I, I mean, so what happened in 2003 when I came back, I, I came back from having covered SARS in Taiwan. I was fine, perfectly healthy. I'd been careful when I was there. And just after I arrived home, I got a note from our Hong Kong bureau saying, hey, one of the American CDC doctors was staying in your hotel looks like he has signs of the virus. Now, of course, SARS was a very serious virus, killed 10% of the people who got it. You know, I didn't know if I'd even seen this doctor in the hotel, I wasn't quite sure, but you know, since the Hong Kong Bureau had told the desk, I, you know, the desk basically said, stay home for 10 days. So I did, but you know, I was right back from overseas. I had no food in my house. I had no clean underwear or, you know, other clean clothes. I, yeah, I lived by myself at then. And so before I went into isolation, I went out to the grocery store and I, and stocked up and I went down to the laundry room in my building and, and, you know, did, did a load of laundry. And you know, I tried not to breathe very much in the elevator. I mean, this was, this was, this was not responsible social distancing. Not that anybody even knew that term then. I did have some masks. I had brought back sort of funny Hello Kitty brand masks and, and Nike Swoop brand and, and things like that for my daughters. But I wasn't about to go to a supermarket in Manhattan wearing a Hello Kitty mask in 2003 because, uh, you know, people would have thought I was goofy. So not anymore. Yeah, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, you, you forget how easily things are normalized. And I was in Taiwan when masks became normalized there. People in Taiwan wouldn't wear them either. And there was the same fight there that there was here, where scientists were saying there's no need for everybody to wear masks, only the sick need to wear masks. And the mayor of Taipei, who later became president of Taiwan because he's a smart guy, realized, you know what? The sick aren't going to wear masks unless everybody wears masks. So he just made it a, a law that day. You can't enter the subways of Taipei without a mask on. And he put cops at every turnstile to say, get out a mask or get out to everybody. And mask wearing became normalized within Taiwan, like very quickly. And it, it, you know, something similar happened in other parts of Asia. I wasn't covering every country, but mask wearing is normalized in Asia, even during flu season for pollution and things like that. And it, it makes sense. And perhaps it would be normalized in this country. But, you know, in Asia, in this, in this epidemic, it has taken very strong measures. I mean, people are walking around, they, they are forced to download GPS trackers into their phones, which say where they are, because if they're supposed to be in quarantine or they just come out of quarantine, or you can also do contact tracing that way. If somebody's been, if you've been in a room with somebody who's, who's infected, they can find you. There's, there's a lot of very compulsory measures. And, and yeah, I, we, people don't do the right thing voluntarily. The right thing has always been to stay six feet away from other people, not to have big parties. And yet this country was, you remember back in the early part of 2020, people were like chomping at the bit to get out by Memorial Day. Like Memorial Day was suddenly the greatest holiday in the history of America. And, you know, and that was irresponsible. And we'd had the big spike in, in New York in the spring. And then we had the big summer spike, including across the South, because a lot of people were out and paying, it and paying no attention to the rules. And, you know, unfortunately, I really you know, if you want to save lives, you need mandates. I mean, I'm, I'm I said this before and people say, I want to shut up. I'm not saying it, but the longer I cover public health, the more of a fascist I turn into, the more I think, you know, we really have to make 
people do the right thing. I'm not yet at the point where I'm ready to hold people down, you know, have police hold people down on the sidewalks and stick needles in their arms. But my feeling is if you want to keep your job, especially if you're, you know, somebody who works in a hospital, if you want to ride an airplane, I think if you want to ride a subway, if you want to get, you know, I mean, depending on what the disease is, but if it's a, it's, if they fast moving respiratory disease, I mean, suppose this had been drug resistant tuberculosis. Suppose this had been, you know, there's a lot of other diseases. This could have been, they could have had much worse outcomes for people. And this kind of disdain for simple rules or this belief that, oh, it's all mild and it doesn't bother me and we'll just hide the vulnerable away, you know, for two years, you know, it's, 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 it's magical thinking and, you know, witchcraft kind of thinking, it, you know, people, people need to realize that lives are at stake and that sometimes you can compel people to do things that save lives. I'm actually baffled by the vision of America that people out when people say, this is America, you can't make me do what I don't want to do. Man, I'm not that old, but when I was 18, you could have snatched me off the street or out of college, dragged me into the military, pumped me with every vaccination without, you know, without even asking me whether I wanted those vaccines, and sent me off to Vietnam to kill or be killed. And I had no say in the matter. I mean, I got lucky. I got a high draft number and I was, you know, had, would have had a student deferment if that hadn't happened. But yeah, you know, the country can make you do things, it, it, not just for the common good, but even for the country's foreign policy advantages. We've gotten too used to the idea that the government exists only for our pleasure and not in order to keep other people sometimes safe from our bad behavior. Well, if it was good enough for George Washington and the Continental <laughs> Army, it's probably good enough for us. <laughs> yeah, he vaccinated, you know, first thing he did becoming commander in chief was he vaccinated, he variolated his troops. He, he made, and I'm sure some of them died too. Because when you do variolation, you lose you know, one to two percent of the people that that get this is this is when you deliberately give somebody a little bit of smallpox under their arm and sort of you know in a, in a you stab it in with a lancet and most people get a mild case and then are immune for life from smallpox but a small percentage of those people will die and so but but he did it and it saved the army and you know I mean the Battle of Quebec was lost partially because the uh, army was so weakened by smallpox the American army. You know, it, 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 it is, it's, a, it's a societal conundrum that goes along with some of the general political and ideologic dysfunction that we're experiencing as we, as we migrate from an analog to a digital society in which our social media is pushing us ever to extremes. I, I visited New York uh, a couple of days ago to see my 95-year-old mother, and people were wearing masks outdoors. Every, you know, every, most people that I saw walking the streets of New York City were wearing masks. Masks were being worn indoors. I feel fine so far. Haven't taken a test. No symptoms. So I, I, may, I, I may have escaped. The, the, the contrast New Hampshire for a little bit of a local angle on this is there are now bills related to COVID and mandates among are the predominant predominant text in the bills with the Republican controlled legislature filing bills to prohibit mandates around masks and vaccines in schools, in businesses to, to basically prevent the intrusion on individual liberty that masking and vaccinating represent. Don, what's, what's the What's the argument? How do you how do you turn the mentality around 
to help people appreciate that as members of a society enjoying the privileges of, of the society as we do, that we owe some duty to each other in a public health emergency. How do we do it? I don't know. I, I, I mean, presumably we do not want people wandering around our cities wearing suicide vests. You know, and, and we would easily pass a law against that because when you say suicide vest, people think, oh, Muslim terrorist must be a bad guy, somebody we don't agree with. But the idea that, that legislators are passing laws that prevent you know, the imposition of measures that would save lives, that would protect people from each other is the equivalent. Suppose those same legislators just said, oh, no, 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 listen, you can't, you can't cut, cut off people's right to wear suicide vests. As long as they don't blow them up, I don't see any reason why they can't wear you know, a vest like that. And, and as long as they keep their finger off the butt, seems, seems fine to me, it, you know, America's a free place. It's no, live, it's free and, live free and die. Yeah, I know. I mean, I see those, those don't tread on me flags. And I think, no, I, that's not what's going on here. That was a question of, you know, oppression by a true power, Great Britain. This is more the flag of, I won't do it and you can't make me. And that's what those flags ought to say, because that's what I feel it is. I mean, we're it's people who just, you know, grew up their whole lives, never being told what to do and, and or, 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 or finally got free from their parents and, you know, decided they weren't going to let anybody else tell them what to do. And now they're acting as if no one can tell them what to do, you know, and even if it, even if it kills them and, you know, okay, too bad for them, but what about their grandmother? What about their kids? What about, you know, their other relatives? What about the people in the hospital nearby? What about people you didn't know had, had problems? I, I just find it, I, I find it horrifying that, that people- So, well, we're not going to force you to try and do a crystal ball exercise. No one can do that. But you know more than just about anyone on this topic. And I'm hoping that you can at least paint some scenarios for how all of this is gonna go from here, given that a good portion of America seems to be having a teenage snit, as you suggest, against public health measures and vaccination. And now we have this Omicron wave and we have sort of an uncertain status of, what might happen around the world with low vaccination rates worldwide, the potential emergence of other variants. So could, could, you, could you look ahead for 2022 for us and give some sense of what are, the, what are the most likely scenarios and which do you think is the most likely? I think, I think the likely scenario is that this variant is going to bring the pandemic to an end. The thing is, the pandemic is never really going to end. What it's, what it, so what, it, what does an end mean? An end means you reach a level of death that you can accept, that you can live with. So with flu, we live with between 12,000 and 60,000 flu deaths a year. With car accidents, we live between 30 and 40,000 car accident deaths a year. With gunshots, we live between 40 and 50 deaths per year. You know, some of these things have gone up. So you, you, you reach a kind of level where you just say, all right, I don't feel so worried that I'm going to you know, change my entire life to avoid this thing. You know, maybe I won't get a flu shot or, or whatever. But we, we live with a certain amount of, of, of death. I think we might get driven towards that level of acceptance faster as a result of this variant. Because as everybody who knows viruses has said from the beginning, ultimately this virus will get you. When you have a very transmissible virus in a large unprotected population, the virus will seek you out. You can hide in the cave 
you, you, you know, you, but you know, if you, if you have to go into for groceries or something, eventually you're going to bump into somebody. I mean, there are a few islands in the world that have been unaffected by this virus so far, but very, very few and far between. And so that'll give everybody, presumably, or nearly everybody, some immunity to the Omicron variant. And we don't know how long that immunity will last. We don't know how sterilizing it will be, in other words, how strong it will be. In other words, can you get to the point where maybe you're immune to hospitalization or death, but maybe you can still pass it on. And we don't know if other variants are going to arise, but everything adds protection. I mean, anybody who was recently infected by the Delta variant is probably fairly well protected against the Omicron variant. And it looks like there is a little bit of data suggesting that the Omicron variant is protective against even the Delta variant. You know, what we'd love, like we've always talked for years about wanting a universal flu vaccine, we'd also love a universal coronavirus vaccine. That probably is a pipe dream, uh, at least for a while, until we know more about how to make sort of multi-factor vaccines. But that would be great. So, but I think, yeah, I mean, the short answer is, is I think this is going to bring the infection rates way down. Now that's, I mean, that's a nice thing to think. I've noticed, in, I'm watching India because India had this enormous Delta wave in April, I think it was. Huge numbers of people died. Maybe more people died in India than have died in this country. I mean, the, the statistics that we know about don't say that. But if you saw the pictures of the bodies lined up to be burned on the ghats and, and, and the, just huge numbers of people, it's possible. And, and I've been watching India since then. It's been like, almost totally flat. It's been very, very little. And now just in the last two days, they're talking about an Omicron surge going up. And I thought, oh, that's bad news for us. You know, I mean, if we can get very sterilizing immunity, have a big spike and yet go on a few months and then have another spike of another variant, if that's happening, oh God, I hope that doesn't happen. Probably if, even if that happens, there will be a certain amount of immunity so that it'll be kind of one of those things where well, it'll be like flu. You know, a variant comes back. We know it comes back. We try to make a vaccine against that specific variant. It's not always a perfect match. Um, the less time you have, to, the, the, the faster you can make the vaccine, the less time the virus has to mutate between the time you start making the vaccine and the time you get into somebody's arm. And that's a good thing. Less time is better because you have a closer match between vaccine and circulating virus. Maybe we'll get better. Maybe we'll be closer to living with something, but we're, we may go through another moment of scare before this is all completely what we consider over when when you consider the the potential courses of that we're that we're seeing and then and peer into the cloudy christmas crystal ball are do you think that realistically that the government healthcare public health officials can do different things, better things, more to steer us to a better scenario. If you if you had your magic wand in 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 the current political environment, how would you wave it? What would you what would you suggest to 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 those who are trying to 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 handle this? I I. I don't think anything in the current political environment can be done terribly differently. I, I mean, the message is very clear. The boosted are protected, like me. Almost, I mean, in my case, almost perfectly protected. I, 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 even the day I was sick, the first day I was sick, I would have gone to work with, with that cold, any, you know, pre-COVID, I would have gone to that work without a second thought. No big deal. 
you know, scratchy throat and, uh, and I'm a little warm. You know, I thought, you know, that, that was probably irresponsible of me to go to work when I was a little bit sick, but we all did it. We like to think we're valuable. We don't want our bosses to be mad, you know, think we're malingering, whatever. But anyway, the, the, the boosters clearly are protected. And yet I'm looking every day at the statistics at how much, what percentage of this country has been fully vaccinated and it doesn't move. It went up from 61.7% to 62%. Big deal. It should have gone up to 90%, you know, because it's, it's obvious. It's like, look, look around at the people you know, look around, you're going to see a lot of people getting sick. If you know a lot of people who are unvaccinated, you're going to see that the unvaccinated people overall, on average, among your friends, if you have friends, are, you know, the, uh, the vaccinated ones are going to be sicker. And, and that ought to give us a clue. But boy, is it hard. I mean, you know, like they used to say in the army, you know, sometimes to make a mule, you know, go, you got to use a two by four just to get its attention. And, you know, the two by four we've been using to get people's attention is death, 800,000 deaths. And yet people are looking to get a vaccine. I mean, I don't think there's anything to be done in this current political environment. I think ultimately another pandemic will come along, hopefully not in my lifetime, but there's no guarantee. And maybe next time we'll have kind of figured out, you know, a few of these measures and maybe there'll be more people, you know, there's that many more survivors every day. You know, I mean, every every thousand people die a day and 950 of them are unvaccinated. I, that's why I think Donald Trump has suddenly come around to saying, get the boosters, get the boosters, because he's doing the math and realizing if you lose 950 voters a day, things don't look so good for you in the battleground states. And, and you know, I hope that next time we'll pay more attention, that, you know, in the same way that, that the Taiwanese and the Singapore residents in China were ready with masks this time and ready with, ready with isolation and ready to do social distancing. And they've actually done a really good job of controlling the virus in all those countries. You know, since... 2020 and then 2021 were such a bummer. I, I want to just hold on for a second as we as we close out the show in the next few minutes to what you just said, because it sounded like a qualified, qualified piece of very good news. And I want to sort of indulge in reading it back to you, because as we start out 2022, I think everyone could use some good news. What I heard you say, I think, is that, well, and first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interpolate something of my own. During the Delta wave, as reporting on the number of hospitalizations and cases and deaths went up, we did see a little bit of a spike in people seeking to get vaccinated. So maybe there's a little upside potential there with the Omicron wave. But on top of that, the, the, the whole picture you lay out, the most likely scenario in your words for 2022 is we're going to, this Omicron wave is going to infect so many people and hopefully mildly, but we, we will see some additional death. That's the qualified part. But this Omicron wave is going to infect so many people that we will get closer to the endemic phase of this disease where there's a certain level of people infected and a certain level of people dying, but it's, it's a level that we can get used to. It's a level where we're still getting, like with our flu shots, we're still gonna be pleading with people every year, get your vaccines get your boosters. They will save your life. And we're still going to have some percentage of people where that appeal will fail. But by and large, for most of the people in the population, it won't be disruptive. It won't define our lives. And we will get to a level where, for the most part, we can live with this. Is that is that pretty much what you're seeing? Yes. I think that that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, always hard to predict the future. I, you know, we, I, I think we'll certainly get some sort of a respite whether we'll have, you know, whether we reach that that unhappy ending that I described and you and you've disencapsulated well, I, I'm not completely sure, but we're I th definitely think we're going in that direction.
Well, I, you know, Paul, I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to talk about any, anything further. I, I want to kind of, I, w- I want to leave on that note. If, if anything, I'd like to sort of, this is the emotional part of me, not the scientific part of me, but I sort of, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to leave off of that. It's not the rosiest scenario one could hear. And I think that lends some credibility to it because you're not saying, look, we're all going to get this and then we're all going to be immune and that's going to be the end of it. And it's not going to be quite as, I don't know, as, as every day as the common cold, but we'll get to a level where we live. I don't know, Paul, is there, does that, is there anything else you want to ask that, that, is so important that it takes us off that that relatively upbeat note for 2022. Oh man, you know, I, I I'm I'm the optimistic idealist of the group. So I'm I'm really happy to 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 hear the glimmer, the glimmer and shimmer of the slight silver lining that Don McNeil has been able to outline in the closing moments of the first show of 2022, because 2022 has got to be better than 2021. All right. Well, look, on that note, let's not spoil it, folks. Welcome to 2022. We are really delighted. Donald G. McNeil Jr., who's an expert, a great interview, a great conversation. And we really do hope for a a speedy and full recovery from what is thankfully a, a mild case of COVID for you. And we hope that what you have just laid out in terms of a future scenario is the way things come to pass. So for former Congressman Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson on Beyond Politics. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Happy 2022.